I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And good morning. Welcome to What's Next. Appreciate you joining us here on WBFO. And this morning we've got a, a widespread conversation that we're going to get into uh, about uh, harm reduction, about the uh, opioid epidemic here in our community. And with us, Rayshawn Scott Williams. Rayshawn is the CEO and founder of Western New York Mobile Ops, Western New York Mobile Overdose Prevention Services. Rayshawn, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, you know, this is something, uh, you know, we, we, you know, you and I were talking before we went on the air just about the, we now call it an opioid epidemic. We've been calling it there now for two, three, maybe four years. Yes. But it, it, it took a while, though, for, I think, the general public to accept the fact that this is something that's everywhere. That's what you find, don't you? Yes, absolutely. We've noticed that the opioid epidemic does not have any barriers. It doesn't discriminate, and it doesn't care how old you are or where you live or how educated you are. You're seeing it everywhere. Yes. At the same time, when we say everywhere, we're not just talking about different parts of the city, but your work also takes you outside the city. You've got uh, work that you do in Wyoming County, Cattaraugus County, so very rural areas. Can you talk about maybe what the difference is that you might see when you're spending time in the rural areas as compared to in the city? Well, just to be clear, um, our primary work has been done in Erie County and Niagara County. Sure. Wyoming County and Cattaraugus County are new. Okay. As of October, we have targeted focus in those areas because we've noticed the lack of resources. People in those areas cannot access the resources that individuals do in the city. Resources. So what kind of resources does Western New York Mobile Ops bring? What does it offer? We offer on-the-spot Narcon training. Narcon is an opioid antagonist to prevent opioid overdose deaths. So we provide that to individuals, and we meet them exactly where they are at. So let's just say if an individual was in a grocery store, a liquor store, a corner store, even a barber shop, or auto shop, auto repair, we can provide Narcon to those individuals and fentanyl testing strips just so that a person does not have to come to us we will come to them. Are people finding those? Are they finding those test strips? Are they finding those, the Narcan? Are they find, uh, is enough awareness out there that those things are available that could, which, with, this is what you're all about, that could save lives? 
Absolutely. People are finding them in locations that are untraditional. Okay. That is the purpose of our mobile program is to put the inf- put access to Narcon and harm reduction supplies in untraditional places. Places where people don't expect it to be, but they can access it. What have been the attitudes that you've been dealing with? I, I'd be interested if maybe you can reflect maybe when you first started with your service as compared to now. Like we mentioned at the top that there seems to be a better, more widely accepted concept that there is a huge problem when it comes to uh, opioid abuse. But when people, when you came around with Narcan initially, what was the response then as compared to now? Wow, it's funny that you asked that question. And this would shock you. When I first introduced Western New York Mobile Overdose Prevention Services, I was told that there was no need. We don't need that. You know why? It was 43 opiate overdose deaths Hmm. when I first thought about mobile ops. 43. And look at the numbers now. It's it's dramatic. Sometimes that can happen in a week, two weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was only 43 opiate overdose deaths in western New York. And I was told there's no need. And now the numbers have skyrocketed. You were told there was no need. How did you know there was a need? Because I worked at the only syringe exchange in western New York, I knew it was a need. When I left there in 2012, I knew that's what I loved. My grant just ended. Um, It was AIDS Community Services when I first started. Then it became Evergreen Health. But when I left there, I knew I left what I love, and that's working with active users and encouraging them to get support, to know that they are more than what they think they are. They are more than what their drug use presents. Empowering parents while I was there training them to use Narcon. At that time, it was the injectable. I taught them with the 3cc needle, injectable kind, Mm. and prevented three opiate overdose deaths while I was there. You're not the first person that I've talked to who has been involved in working with needle exchanges. And the person I'm thinking about found great satisfaction um, in doing that, take us through just a little bit. Like you, you said, you you you, you seem to in, you know, enjoy reminding people of their value, yes. and that the drug use does not define them. Yes. But take us through those those interactions just a little bit more, because I would have to think there's a lot of fear on that other side of the of the coin here, right? The person who is coming in with the needle and looking to exchange, just, right? They're, 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 I would think that's there's a lot of apprehension. Maybe. Absolutely. You know, when you when you walk into a space and I really would give all credit 
to the CEO now of Evergreen, Raymond Gano. He hired me. Hmm. And when he hired me, he brought me through a process. It was really of actually acknowledging first, this is a, one, this is a person. This is a person coming to you for help in the most weakest state to get clean syringes, cookers, cotton swabs for injection, alcohol wipes we provided, and most importantly, we provided HIV testing and hepatitis C testing. That was my job also, to encourage individuals who were injecting to get tested. And sometimes those test results came back positive. Mm. And sometimes those test results came back negative. But for the positives, we had to encourage them and provide them with resources so that they can follow up on their care and to talk to their loved one who they may have possibly infected. When you started working in the needle exchange, did you get pushback from friends, family members? Like, what do you? What is this? What What is this needle exchange? Did you get that kind of a yeah. kind of attitudes? What yeah. was that like? Yeah, yeah. You know, when a when an upset parent comes into a syringe exchange and really wonders and question why are you giving their child clean syringes. And I'm not saying a child, child. I'm saying 16 and up. Sure. You know, because we did have individuals come to us as young as 16. And what we did in our program is in in the syringe exchange um, was to try to have older individuals talk to the younger ones and let them know what road they're going down. That's a form of harm reduction. Talking to them about using other substances other than something that's going to possibly kill them and give them HIV or any other type of um, communicable disease. Your work sounds like it can be tremendously rewarding. At the same time, there has to be some heartbreak in there. People that you know, that you probably helped along the way, unfortunately, maybe don't make it. I think that's the hardest part. Um, If you don't mind, share with us what that's like for for you. Uh, What you know, maybe the maybe in the first, do you have like a a memory where you know it was just a crushing moment for you in a certain way that of the disappointment that you felt, Hmm. sadness. I think the sad, the most saddest thing is knowing that your family members can die too. Mm. Experiencing family members overdose while you're training individuals to prevent overdose is very devastating because what you do is think back and wonder, is your work effective? Or wonder, are you is your reach far enough? Is the education being is it there? Am I doing the work that I'm call myself doing? 
that's you look internally, and sometimes you may blame yourself. But what I've learned is that, one, I can't save the world. I can't be everywhere. But if we try to explain to our loved ones and to our uh, people in our community, if we try to meet them where they're at and not judge them, maybe they'll come to us. Maybe they'll feel free to go to another agency and get support. Maybe they'll find someone to speak to. Just so they, we, we have to lessen the stigma of getting help. We have to lessen the stigma of use, of drug use, because we all have a vice. It may not be the specific vice that they're using. Our vice may be food, and that's why we have so many diabetics. Our vice may be alcohol, which is legal, and that's why we have so many car accidents or alcohol poisonings. Our vice can also be relationships. It could be sex. A vice is still a vice, and that's what I teach. We all have vices. We all need help, but we all do not want to be judged. When we go seek the service that we're requesting, we don't need judgment. We don't need that because what it will do is make us turn away and continue on with whatever substance we're using and whatever vice we enjoy. We're talking with uh, Rayshawn Scott Williams this morning on What's Next, CEO and founder of Western New York Mobile Overdose Prevention Services, Western New York Mobile Ops. Uh, You're talking about teaching, training, uh, talking to people are are we talking about trying to help uh, talking to people let's say like a parent who has paper, a child who's a, a user or are you talking to to users themselves trying to explain that to them that this is their vice as you use the term other people have their vices too they just may not be quite as deadly absolutely um yes training training uh parents Training active users. And also what you left out is training those drug dealers. Really? Oh, absolutely. We train drug dealers to test your product because drug dealers can be the most effective part of harm reduction. And if you really think about it, a drug dealer buys their drug they wouldn't know if fentanyl is laced, if fentanyl, if their drug is laced with fentanyl, and then they sell it to their consumers unless they test it. Okay. So we provide fentanyl testing strips to drug dealers. Now that is a relationship that is a trusted relationship because the dealer has to know, I am not a police officer. I'm not in... That's not my job. My job is to reduce the harm that you are causing. 
So if I can better serve my community by having a very trustful relationship with known drug dealers, why not? That's very sensible at the same time. And I want to be careful how I ask these questions mm-hmm. because it's not, I mean, there might be a certain amount of uh, confidentiality, I would think, mm-hmm. involved here for sure. But it, you've intrigued me about that concept. How do you go about connecting these relationships when it comes to drug dealers, if you don't mind maybe expanding on that a little bit? Well, sometimes it's the actual customer okay. who take me to the person and introduce me and tell me to come drop off here. This is a trap house, that's what they call it. And because they see that they have established a trusting, and I keep saying trust. Right. Trust is going to be key. I, As I've said, I go into areas other organizations do not enter. And because of that, I provide them with harm reduction and safer sex supplies, PPE, uh, and and gifts. They love gifts. Hmm. People love gifts. Sure. So when you give them things and they know that you're a friendly person, you're a trusting person, then I can talk to you. I can have that dialogue and say, I don't want you to do a 50-to-life murder sentence. I would say bid, but I'm going to say sentence. Um, Because you've served someone fentanyl-laced cocaine Hmm. or fentanyl anything, anything laced with that drug or heroin, um, person overdoses on that or street um pills overdose on that and you serve them you can go to jail for that so what i do is teach people how to reduce the harm in all areas regardless to your drug use and regardless to what your job occupation is so trust but, but just ahead. to be clear yes i'm not promoting drug use or drug selling, I am promoting harm reduction. And also the reality that this is taking place. Yes. You know, we, in New York State, we know all about the prosecution of, of uh, drug laws in this state and how that has really failed. Uh, it has failed the society for sure. So we know this is taking place, and the, like you said, you're not promoting it in that regard. But I'm still very intrigued about what you see when you, when you approach a, somebody who deals, their initial response, again, I would think, is not trusting, right? No, it's right. definitely not trusting. Um, once, well, actually, I could give you an example. Okay. Um, in our Riverside, Tonawanda area, um, there is a really, there's really hot blocks. There's hot spots. So you can identify Who's doing what, okay? And that is not, I don't want to divulge anyone's information. Sure. But you can see who's doing what. And sometime, as I said, it's their customers 
who bring me to the person and point the person out. Okay, it's that person right there. So then when I am delivering to our community partners, I can say, here's some fentanyl testing strips. Do you know anybody who may need them? Mm. That's how I ask them. Do you know anybody? I'm not saying it's you. I'm not saying it's your friends. I'm saying, do you know anybody? And sometimes that's the most, um, that's the easiest way to engage with somebody is can you help me? Can you help me? Do you know anybody who uses? Um, and then when I explain how easy it is to overdose by not listening and following those directions on a pill bottle that even says take one, one pill every six to eight hours, but the pain doesn't go away because your tolerance increased. The pain doesn't go away, so we take another pill. Hmm. That's that's a that's a way to overdose. Our seniors forgetting that they took their medication. That's a way to overdose. I talk to them. I try to meet people and talk to them on a level. Whatever audience I'm in, I can train. Yeah, you, when you talk and you're telling these stories, I, I'm seeing like. The- I'm seeing a 16-year-old here. I'm seeing a 25-year-old here. I'm seeing a 65-year-old here. Um, the same message resonates that the, the, trust builds, or do you have to approach everybody a little differently? Well, actually, I do. I approach everyone differently. It depends on my audience mm-hmm. because sometimes if I'm talking to a dealer, I'm not going to talk to him as if he's a— as as if I'm talking to the person who's consuming it. Or if I'm talking to the grandmother, I'm not gonna I'm gonna break it down to whoever I'm in front of. Gotcha. Especially our children. I have been recently asked by the Kenton School District to do a training for the coming year for the middle school, their seniors and their staff. And they asked me just that question. Would I break the training up? Absolutely, because my audience will be different. Hmm. So you're going to go and train. What? Uh, and maybe take us through the training then, just a little bit. What? Like you said, you got to change. You got to adapt it for the audience. Appreciate that. Uh, give me, give me some thoughts about how you're going to go, go about doing that. Well, just as if I would be speaking to the audience today. I was asked them if they knew how many, if they know someone who uses opioids. Most people will raise their hand. And then I will ask them, do you know how to save lives if that individual was not ready to stop? And you've seen an opioid overdose right in front of your eyes what would you do? Would you leave the person? And if you would, how would you feel if that was your child or your loved one? I would ask them that. I start off by that. 
because I have to bring them into the process of wanting to get trained and knowing how easy it is to save lives. It's never been easier to save lives with the nasal spray. If you can recognize an opiate overdose, you can prevent an opiate overdose. It's our duty. It's our duty to save lives. It's our duty not to walk away. Find out the information and don't judge them. Because once you start that judgment and that shame about what they are doing, they're not coming back. And especially not coming back to see you. What's the, uh, I know law enforcement, they're getting trained in yes. use of Narcan. What's, uh, have you had a chance to gauge maybe what their attitudes are toward this issue? Well, honestly, yes. I've trained individuals who work for the police department. And what they have told me, it's voluntary, honestly, for them to administer Narcan. Because that's not their primary job. Their job is to serve and protect. Their job is not to administer Narcan. That's for EMTs. You know, they have better things to do. Certainly. And that's get those criminals off the street, honestly. But if we can lessen the burden of our police officers, that's something we want to do. We want to work with them. We train them if necessary but most of them do have training, but they are in severe jeopardy because when they come on the scene and they search individuals, they can have fentanyl on them. They can contaminate themselves mm. and go into an overdose because they've touched fentanyl and it's absorbed in their skin. There's been cases, known cases, where police officers have been subject to a over, subjected to an overdose mm. because they are our first responders. We've got a lot to talk about here. Uh, yes. That's for sure. We're going to take a short break, give ourselves a, a little moment here to, to breathe, and we'll come back with more. We're talking with Rayshawn Scott-Williams, CEO and founder of Western New York Mobile Overdose Protection, uh, Prevention Services, or Western New York Mobile Ops take a time out and we'll come back with more. This is What's Next on WBFO. Join WBFO every Saturday at 6 p.m. for an insightful and enlightening series of audio documentaries from our region that tackle topics such as the environment, health, the world of entertainment, and more. Listen to the WBFO DocuHour every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on WBFO, your NPR station. Hi, I'm Christina. I love exploring the world around me. And I have behind the scenes VIP tickets to some of the most exciting places and people in Western New York. And you can come along with me from wherever you are. Let's go. A new series you can watch on WNED PBS, the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel, and on PBS Learning Media nationwide. So let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. 
Attention, parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome back to What's Next with this Rayshawn Scott Williams. Rayshawn is the CEO and founder, trainer of Western New York Mobile Overdose Prote- Prevention Services or Western New York Mobile Ops. Before we went to break, you were describing or even mentioned how you know, if somebody knows how to use Narcan and they recognize somebody's having an overdose, they can save a life. How do you recognize an overdose? What are we looking at? I mean, I, you know, that's something I've never actually, you know, we see dra- uh, dramatizations, I guess, in movies and TV shows over the years. But what really are you seeing when you happen? Because this is something that you've dealt with. Well, um, honestly, you have. There's different scenarios. Okay. Every every scenario would be different. Okay. But there is certain signs um, of an overdose. You can sometimes the person has a bluish or purplish tint. Mm. Um, if they are of a lighter skin tone, they may you can recognize that more easily. But if they are of a darker skin tone, you may have to look at the bed of their nails. Um, hmm. But when you look at the bed of their nails, they may be a barrier. Because if it's a female or male, they could have polish on their nails. So you may not be able to see it like that. But you always can put your finger up over their, under their nose and see if they are breathing. Okay. The most important thing about Narcon is that it enables breathing. That's the most important thing people need to know. So if you don't feel breaths under their nose or you don't see that your chest is rising up and down, something is wrong. Because Some, sometimes, you know, it could even sound like snoring. Sometimes people tell me, well, I thought they were asleep. Honestly, I had a coven, a, a family member overdose like that. Mm. They thought they were asleep. And the person had actually overdosed. So sometimes it sounds like a snoring sound. But most importantly, now this is the most important. If a person does the sternum rub and that individual do not give you a response to pain, the sternum rub is your breastbone. Sure. If you press and rub on that sternum, I'm actually doing it now, but if you press and rub on your sternum, it's going to cause pain. That's your breastbone. It causes pain. And what I want you to do is add pressure to that breastbone. Put your body weight in it. And if a person does not respond to that and say, get off me or give you some type of reaction, they're overdosing. Something is wrong. Wow. That's when you kick in. That's when you get your your kid out and you inject that, um, excuse me, then you spray the nasal spray in their nose, lay them on their side, 
Somebody call 911. That's what I always teach people. Scream out if somebody is there. Somebody call 911. If you know their name and and Jenny is over there with you, Jenny, call 911. Tell them we have an unresponsive person. Then you once you have administered that narcon, you lay that person on the side, you wait two to three minutes. See if that person gives you a response and take that breath. You know that they're breathing. <clears throat> if they do not give you that breath in two to three minutes, you administer a second dose of Narcon because there's going to be two inside of a kit. One kit has two nasal sprays in it, and once you administer that one, you lay that person on the side, you're not leaving them, another person is calling 911. By the time you administer that second one, 911 should be there. A EMT should be there. Someone should be there because that's what you've directed. One person is staying with the person. Another person is getting assistance. But if a person was by themselves, they can always call 911, press speaker, and tell them what is going on. You, because you just never want to leave the person. Right, and you mentioned this before, and it's it's worth noting that there is a, just a general encouragement among harm reduction uh the harm reduction community, I guess I'll, I'll use that term, to, if you're going to use, don't use by yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why Why turn them on their side? What's, uh, what's the purpose of that? Oh, that is primarily so that they will not aspirate and choke on their own vomit. Mm. When you administer the Narcon, it is definitely going to take out all opioids. So the person will vomit. Oh, Okay. They will vomit, and that will come out. Now, if a person had been mixing drugs, only the opioids is going to come out. Hmm. They'll still wake up high, but they'll also wake up in pain, too, because you've done that sternum rub. Right. And they know that the opioids is out of their system, so they're going to be sick and in pain. What's the response from, from the 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 individual then i mean again it must be different in different cases but what are some of the responses that come from people that you know i was basically i was basically dead right and mm-hmm. and you yeah. saved me what what's what what are the responses like what 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 do you hear well sometimes it's very shocking mm-hmm. um sometimes they don't they're not the most happiest mm-hmm. that um you took away their high mm. they they just spent 20 dollars getting that, you know, and then you took it away. And sometimes they're wondering what happened. They know they feel the pain because the sternum rub hurts. You're cause, you are intentionally causing pain. You want to cause pain. And that's what I want to make sure people understand. You want to cause pain. And you want that person to remember this this experience is not something that you look forward to. It's not something a user, a, a person in active use looks forward to. They don't want to be hit with, you know, they don't want Narcon used on them. Right. They want to enjoy their high. But if you're overdosing, what are you supposed to do? You are 
supposed to save their life, regardless to how they feel when they're done. Um, and people have told me stories of people wailing around, trying to hit you or fight you, you know, not really physically fight sure. you. Sure, just angry. Angry. Mm-hmm. Angry because you took away their high. You know this better than I do, and maybe you don't have the, the full answer, but if somebody is using, whether it's in Riverside, it's in South Buffalo, it's in Gowanda, it's in Warsaw, wherever, and you use with some frequency, is it likely that you're going to run into, that? that's just almost inevitable that an overdose is going to be finding you eventually? Oh, so sad. Yes, yeah. it's so sad, though. It's so sad. Yes, absolutely. Fentanyl, we can't predict this person did not use, put fentanyl in a cocaine. They're cutting the cocaine with the fentanyl so they can stretch it, and it can last longer, and the people will come back because they'll be higher. The saddest thing is that when people die, individuals chase where they died at so that they can get it. Mm. That's the saddest thing. They try to find where the drug is that oh, that made this person overdose. The saddest thing is that people intentionally want fentanyl in their cocaine so that they can be high and get that feeling. They just don't know that death could be around the corner. Rashawn Scott Williams is with us this morning on uh, What's Next, CEO and founder of Western New York Mobile Ops. Uh, Rashawn, um, appreciate all the uh, conversation that you've given us here so far. We had a conversation before we went on the air talking about the difference between now and, say, what, 25 years ago when crack was the big drug, right? Mm-hmm. And you had some really interesting insight into what people say who used maybe at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could share that with us, please. Oh, absolutely. Well, I was I was sharing with you that I receive a lot of pushback um, in the community. Sometimes people have actually said to my face, why do I care? Hmm. You have to imagine my experience as the only African-American opiate overdose program, woman-founded opiate overdose program in upstate New York, addressing opioid use right after the crack epidemic. It was very disheartening for people to know that now use is considered a disease. It's a change in brain chemistry. That was not taught. That was not taught 20 years ago about crack use. It's not taught today about crack use. That is a disease. If we think about the conversations people have today, they don't consider crack use as a disease as they do opioid use. They just don't. 
they consider crack use a black problem. That's what they, there were actual words that were created that pertain to crack use. The mothers were called crack moms, mm. crack babies. Um, they, What is that? That's a disassociation that's taking the person, their use, and just eliminating that they're a human being. They're one a human being. Instead of calling them crack babies, they should have said that these babies were born addicted to crack because of the use of their mom, whose brain chemistry has changed. We didn't know that. We didn't know brain chemistry changed when you are actively using. We didn't know that. We were left to hate our loved ones. Because their brain chemistry changed, they stole, they lied, they did things that were not of the norm, that we were not used to, we were unfamiliar with. We didn't know. But now that opioid use has impacted populations in the suburban areas, which they are primarily Caucasians, whose children are dying, then we have a disease. Our children were dying also. Our parents were dying on, were uh, in, uh, excuse me, our parents were in active addiction. Our loved ones, our friends, our family members, our community was totally impacted, but we were not left with answers. We did not get the answers. We only received drug laws where our family members and our loved ones and people we knew were incarcerated for years and years and years and are still incarcerated today. But when we have opioid use disorder, we cannot arrest our way out of the drug problem. That's a problem. That's a problem. I think you, you, you've summed it up, but just to expand on it a little bit, you find resistance inside the community in certain places because of the attitudes toward crack use? Absolutely. And with the resistance, you can't teach if or train with the resistance. You have to have a, tr a trusting relationship so we could break through the resistance and you could receive the information. And that's the training because one thing about it, although there were a very, it was devastating on not just the African-American community about crack use because it wasn't just African-Americans using crack, but the impact 
devastated our community. When you think about that and you think about the disproportionate, disproportionate, again, rate of opiate overdose deaths in the African-American community, you know there's a disconnect in language. It's a disconnect in information because there's no way possible. We are, we are 14% of the overall population and 40% of opiate overdose deaths. 14% of the population, 40% of opiate overdose deaths. That's almost half for a 14% population. Who's 85%? Is 85% that's left, like, when we do the math? How can we be half if 85% is left? How? It doesn't add up. No, no, it doesn't. It, I, it, it's not making sense to and, me. And the way you're, you're, you're saying it, and, and you, as you led into that, you, you mentioned about language and, and, and communication. So what's, what's missing then? What, what aren't we getting to a, a, somebody who is African-American and is a user compared to somebody who's a user in whatever town, USA? What, what do you see? What, what, what's, what's missing in there? What I see is that we backtracking. We have to backtrack now. Okay. If we would have did it in the beginning and we would have addressed the opioid epidemic as a whole for all populations, we wouldn't have to backtrack. So now we're backtracking. We're, we got our uh, pedals on. I see the counties, the, the county health departments. Now they all have to backtrack because now we have to re re-educate. Because it wasn't, if the focus in the education and the training was on all populations, we would not have to do this. But now we have to provide more funding, more resources in spaces that were never served in the beginning. That's what we need to do. We have to provide that. If we're not having targeted funding to address targeted populations, we're going to continue to have those statistics, and they're going to continue to rise, and we're going to continue to see opiate overdose deaths with populations, for populations that are not being addressed. I want to give credit where credit is due to a certain extent because I think there are some elected officials who are spending a certain amount of time putting light on this subject. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as you say it right there, the resources aren't being targeted. We're not getting them to the right places all the time or enough. You know, what's missing there? Is it just a matter of, of people like us talking about it more and more and trying to bring that and make it, make it an issue that everybody can get into? Or is, are there parts of the political process that are just blocking this from being something that should be a priority. It's a, it's a major health concern. Well, when you think about it and you, you give credit what credit is due, I want you to think about 
Who are you speaking of? Is it five? Is it a number that you can count on one hand of the politicians? On one hand. Is Okay. So that's the problem. If you can count them on one hand, there's not enough. There's not enough politicians who believe that recovery is possible, funding is necessary, or even addressing this is something that pertains to them or their family member. Maybe that's the problem, that they're not seeing it, that it can happen to them just as it can happen to me and just as it can happen to you or your listeners. It can happen to any one of us, but there's not enough people, as you said, speaking about this, addressing it, and it's not enough people who are African-American, who are black, indigenous, people of color, addressing this issue for populations who look like black, indigenous people of color. That is a problem. It's a problem. We have to have open dialogues, even if it's scary, open conversations, and we have to have safe spaces. Now, that's important. If there is not a safe space to talk, we're not going to dis- we're who's going to feel comfortable? We're not. Our guest is Rayshawn Scott Williams. She is the CEO and founder of Western New York Mobile Overdose Prevention Services or simply Western New York Mobile Ops. You love saving lives, you love this work. And we've been talking about the problem. We've been kind of getting in a, in a dark place here. But lives have been saved. Yes. You know some of these lives, don't you? Oh, yeah. Tell me about Tell me some of, the, some of your... I, I'm hoping that there's lots and lots of uh, happy endings, maybe not necessarily, but saving a life is great. What comes after? Because users are probably going to, most likely going to repeat for, I'm not going to say indefinitely, but it does does continue for a long time. And we interviewed somebody on this program uh, back uh, last year who was using for 22 years. And this person was uh, a PhD candidate. Oh, wonderful. Right? Yes. Right. But uh, trying to get back on track. Right, right. Um, his life has been spared. He continues on. We haven't heard from him since that, that interview. But what about for you? What are some of your... Your success stories, some things that, that kind of bolster you as you as you look at all that you've dealt with here. Well, registering honestly with the New York Matters program was a definite benefit for us to provide individuals with a 14-day supply of treatment and a clinical director on the spot. Now that was really impactful for our community. And one of the success stories through that is, um, just for example, I was out, um, I was out doing some, actually, no, my husband asked me to pick up a prescription at the pharmacy. I went and I went up, picked up the prescription. There was a group of people out, um, in front of one of the corner stores and, um, 
a young lady asked me, um, I went up to her and I told her about our program, but she asked me, could you help me? I said, yes. What do you need help with? I really want to get off this. Mm. I don't want to do this no more. My boyfriend sells fentanyl, and I, I just tried it. But I overdosed yesterday. You know what I did? Uh, I called the New York Matters program. I connected her. And she received a 14-day supply of treatment and a clinical director on the spot. Now, something like that, that works. Having access to best self um, palm cards, we put them in our kits um, because they have a 24-7 hotline, opiate overdose hotline. That's helpful. That's impactful. People are receiving services when they open the kit. You don't have to worry about where to look. It's inside your kit. Another success is knowing that the store owners, has at, their employees actually save lives with the kits we put in the store. There was a young lady just one week ago on Friday. I was inside one of our community partners, um, talking to them, delivering kids. She said, um, are those free? I just got one. I, I said, absolutely, they're free. She said, I got it from the liquor store down the street. And um, I didn't think I was going to use it because I was always under the impression I, I just smoke. We live in New York. I just smoke weed. And... Um, I don't need fentanyl testing strips. She said she went to a party, went to go enjoy herself, was drinking and everything. Somebody's on the couch, stretched out. She noticed they had been there for over 30 minutes, the mm. people told her. She said it was something about him. I went over to him. She told me what she did. He did not respond. She remembered she had a kit. She called the EMT. Actually, she called 911. They asked her, do you have Narcon? She remembered, I have a kit in my car that I got from the liquor store. Mm. Ran to her car, administered the Narcon. The person survived. But the people in the household had previously told her, leave him alone. He just sleep. Mm. He had been asleep for over 30 minutes, she said, but it was a weird sleep. She said something told her. He, he's not, that something's wrong. And when she administered the Narcon, he survived. That's just a brief synopsis of how easy it is for a lay person to just care, recognize respond and react and she did it yes she did because you put that in the liquor store that's and right i appreciate that rayshawn scott williams ceo and founder of western york mobile overdose protection prevention services thanks for joining us on what's next oh thank you thank you it's thank you great. this is wbfo and wbfo hd1 buffalo 
WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.